0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 160, recorded on October 25th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you on your final episode of Linux
1: Action News. Yeah, where's this taking over next week, but I'll be back at the end of the year for a predictions episode. I've got to beat you at that one last time.
0: And we've got a big batch of news this week to send you off
1: to, so a lot to get into. So let's start with Ubuntu 2010 released. Now, this is just an interim release, so it's not an LTS, a long-term support. So it's only going to be supported for nine months. So you don't expect to see too much great in there. And for me, not much has changed. I think a sure sign that not much has changed is when Jory's article at OMG Ubuntu includes new wallpapers on the list of features.
0: (laughs) Hey, I know some of those in corporate life will be happy to see Active Directory support landing in the installer. And some folks out there with newer hardware will appreciate Linux 5.8. But I think the headline feature here with 2010 Groovy Gorilla is the Raspberry Pi 4 desktop
1: support. Of course, previous versions of Ubuntu were officially supported on the Raspberry Pi, but only the server editions. This is the first release that's got official desktop support.
0: Yeah, and that means you get the GNOME desktop version of Ubuntu on a Raspberry Pi 4. Now, you need to have either a 4GB or 8GB model to pull this off. But with this, you essentially have the entire suite, the family of Ubuntu's available for the Raspberry Pi from server stuff, which has gotten even better with 2010. I don't know many folks will be running 2010 as a server, but if you are running disposable edge infrastructure, there's a lot to like about 2010, and its support for Raspberry Pis means you could have on-demand edge devices running on ARM. That's pretty compelling. But you can see where this is going long-term, Joe. This is going to eventually all roll into the next LTS release, which is still a bit off, still a ways down the road from now, but you got to get these things lined up. And I think this is where Canonical is being really clever, because I I don't know who is really chomping at the bit today to have the Ubuntu GNOME desktop on Raspberry Pi 4, but it's there, and they're supporting it. And as a company, they're aligning behind it. In fact, Mark Shalderworth's statement seems to really indicate a deep commitment. They say, in this release, we celebrate the Raspberry Pi's foundation to commitment to put open computing in the hands of people all over the world. We're honored to support this initiative by optimizing Ubuntu on the Raspberry Pi, whether it's for personal use, educational purposes, or as the foundations of their next business venture. This is canonical preparing for a platform that I think has a lot of legs still. We're only just beginning to see the Raspberry Pi Foundation's hardware capabilities, and the Raspberry Pi 4 is already pretty impressive, but imagine, like I've been saying for a while, what the Pi 5 is going to bring and the Pi 6... And what else they might be working on. And I I think it's really clever for Canonical to align the company behind this and prepare for that future. And you do that today by
1: getting an interim release up and running on the desktop. Yeah, this is the perfect time to have your first desktop release on the Pi because it's an interim and it's the first interim after the LTS. So they've got 18 months now until 2204 comes out. And that's plenty of time to iron out the issues. I was a little bit skeptical that GNOME was going to perform well on the Raspberry Pi, even the 4, and I think this release has vindicated my skepticism because it does feel a lot slower and just generally more sluggish than Raspberry Pi OS, which is not a huge surprise because the Raspberry Pi Foundation have been making that distro for a long time. They've had a lot of time to iron out any issues with it. And it's also an LXDE desktop, which is inherently lighter than GNOME. Right. And I
0: think you'd have a similar experience with Mate versus GNOME on the Raspberry Pi 4. Mate is going to perform better, just like XFCE will. And this is not, um, I think, what is driving the decision here. Canonical is perfectly aware of this performance difference. I think it's really about getting the team, about getting the resources and staffing in place to enable this complete port of Ubuntu to this platform, so it's not just the server, it can be the entire legitimate Ubuntu desktop, and you start now. And yeah, you're absolutely going to win the performance argument every day of the week right now with the Raspberry Pi 4. You're going to have a better experience with LXDE or LXQ or XFCE on this hardware. Just no doubt about it. But it's damn impressive that GNOME Shell is in good enough shape and the Raspberry Pi 4 is fast enough that you can actually do it. Like that, first of all, is surprising to me. And second of all, like I've said a couple times now, you can see where this is going to go in a few more iterations of the Pi, it's going to be just fine. And imagine if you're building yourself a desktop around the Pi 4, it's kind of nice to even have Canonical doing this because you know now that if Ubuntu is your distro of choice, your hardware platform is being taken seriously by them. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but you can get Pi cases now that have legitimate cooling, they put all the ports on the back, you hook it right up and you're going to have a mouse and keyboard hooked up to a monitor and
1: it's usable. I don't know if i do it with GNOME Shell, though, but I can see where it's going to get there. Yeah, I think over the next 18 months, it will get there, and hopefully I'll be proven wrong, and GNOME will be optimized enough to run on it. And it's all about the hardware acceleration and getting all that tweaked perfectly. This is a good start, but it's not really daily driver-ready just yet, I don't think.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I agree with the, with the light experimenting that I did. However, I tip my hat because I think they're betting that this platform's going places and there's more to come. I think it's a smart bet. Well, if you want to run Windows on your Chromebook,
1: Parallels Desktop for Chromebook Enterprise is out. This was announced back in June, but here we are actually seeing it come to fruition. And for $69.99 per year per user, plus the Windows license, you can have a full Windows 10 desktop within Chrome OS, but only if you are an enterprise customer. That's part of the big sell here,
0: isn't it? Is that it can be managed and deployed from your... standard chrome management suites fully ready to go with windows you can deploy it to a chromebook remotely and then the user double clicks one icon and the thing's up and going and they're really selling hard on the integration with the os the mouse cursor the copy paste support and and then kind of cl- trying to close the deal by talking about how great it will be for you to run microsoft office on your google chromebook and that really tells us who's driving this, is there, there must be a customer that wants Microsoft Office, not the cloud version now, the full Windows version on the desktop. And they also want a Chromebook.
1: <laughs> well, think about it. This is the one solution to rule them all now, potentially. You can buy a high-end Chromebook, and it has to have at least an i5 or i7 and 16 gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigabytes of storage. But then you've got a machine that can... Run Chrome OS and be updated and have the best bits about Linux. You can run a complete version of Windows 10. You've got all the Android apps, and you've got proper Linux support via Debian VM. Yep, and you get all of the
0: benefits of a simple Chromebook for the users who don't need this. So you could buy these machines for your school, for your business, deploy them and manage them with the Google Admin Console, which is pretty tight and pretty well done, And then for the handful of users that need the extras that are only available in local Office, you deploy this with some single clicks. Well, I'm sure it's more than that, but that's how they pitch it. And they actually do mention in here some of the things that users might want that aren't in the full version of Office, funny enough. If you want trend lines, you have to have full Excel. If you want tables in Word, you got to have full Word. If you want custom fonts or headers or footers in PowerPoint, well, you got to have full PowerPoint. And that's who they're targeting this at. Maybe you have a shop that has several hundred users and maybe only 30 of them need this Windows VM and the rest can all be totally plugged into the Google ecosystem and have everything they need. And meanwhile, as a business, every four or five years, you're buying them like a thousand dollar Chromebook. I could see it. I see it maybe a little more in education, but I guess I can kind of get it. It seems like a funny way to go about it when you have things like remote desktop as as an option. But I I guess if you're offline, you want something fully local, this is probably the best way to go.
1: Well, especially as people are working more from home these days, where internet connections can be a bit ropey, having a full offline version of Windows that you can still work on your documents while your internet's down for a couple of hours is a pretty good sell for a Chromebook, which, at least when they started, were completely cloud-connected and internet connection-dependent. I feel like you're talking about me there a little bit. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't even thought of you, where, yeah, sometimes you go off into the woods and have got no internet for a couple of days even. But, you know, we talked about Ubuntu at the beginning of the show, and that is a great distribution to use on the desktop, and it's doing well. But for the mainstream crowd, this is how Linux on the desktop wins. Some of our community doesn't necessarily like it that Chrome OS is a massively popular Linux desktop, but it is, and you can't really argue with that. And so a combination of Chrome OS, Windows Subsystem for Linux, and proper distros like Ubuntu are how we have one on the desktop with Linux. It's just not kind of how people imagined it would be. I think that kind of sums up how life is these days, Joe. (laughs) It's just not how we thought it would be, but it is what
0: it is. (laughs) Indeed. System76.com, we've been talking about them recently, and now they've made some big news with the Thaleo Mega. It's the world's smallest quad-GPU workstation, made for deep learning and scientific computing. Although... I suspect you could game with it too. And it has the same beautiful design, that Thaleo look, but even in a smaller, compact unit now. So go to System76.com and check out the Thaleo Mega. Run it through the configurator and see how you can build this just the way you like it. You can go up to 256 gigabytes of quad-channel RAM. You can put four GPUs, super high-end GPUs, if you want. And that's why System76 took great care to make sure the airflow in the Mega is top-notch. It's Way beyond industry standard stuff here. Everything down to the GPU brace developed to secure the GPUs for transit has been designed for maximum thermal efficiency. And just like the previous units, the Mega is open source hardware, which is up on GitHub. It's handcrafted and manufactured right there in Denver, Colorado. They're designed and built in the U.S. So check them out system76.com. And if you get something, tell them Linux Action News sent you.
1: One of the biggest controversies of the week was YouTube DL being removed from GitHub thanks to a DMCA request by the RIAA.
0: Yeah, the RIAA is the Recording Industry Association of America, and they have utilized a DMCA takedown request, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It is the oldest trick in the book, but what is different this time is the takedown request was based on entries in YouTube DL's source code. So let that sink in for a moment. Now they're going through and scanning potential copyright violations in open source source code up on GitHub. And I actually think it was part of a blitz, Joe. I think it was 18 projects in total that were taken down around the time that YouTube DL was taken down.
1: Generally speaking, previously, they've gone after organizations and people who are engaged in copyright infringements directly. Whereas the difference here is that they're going after a tool which can be used for copyright infringement. And that is a bit of a change of tactic by them. Yeah, in a letter sent to GitHub, the RIAA argued that the clear purpose
0: of the source code was to circumvent the technological protection measures used to authorize streaming services such as YouTube and to allow users to reproduce and distribute music videos and sound recordings without authorization. Because obviously the only use for YouTube DL, which downloads and archives videos from thousands of websites... Obviously, the only use of that tool is music piracy. Well, to
1: be fair, in YouTube DL's examples, they use the URLs of videos like Taylor Swift and Justin Timberlake, which was a little bit short-sighted by the YouTube DL project. They should have used some Creative Commons video, maybe, like Big Buck Bunny or something, rather than, hey, you can use this to download Shake It Off. Right. They were likely
0: scanning for the very URLs for those popular music videos, the RIAA was, and they found it in source code on GitHub. I am not comfortable with them scanning GitHub and issuing takedowns like this, but it's come to my attention that this isn't totally uncommon behavior on the GitHub platform. In fact, even open source projects like MB have used the DMCA takedown process on GitHub. So it's not totally uncommon, but this idea that perhaps a violation could exist by linking to a URL or suggesting people download a URL in one part of the source code or in one part of the documentation shouldn't necessarily equal take down the entire project immediately. The developers of YouTube DL found out about this by, by trying to just work on their project. In fact, I'll link to this in the show notes. At first, because they were constantly living under fear of this, at first they just assumed it was Google. They just assumed it was Google that did the takedown because why wouldn't they come after them for even just calling their project YouTube DL? So they just naturally assumed that it was Google that caused it, and then they figured out after they got access to the information that it was actually a takedown from the RIAA. But imagine that use case. You're a developer working on a a worldwide famous project that is used to do all kinds of things, from live stream capturing to backing up videos that are just on a a news website, right? It has potentially nothing to even do with YouTube. And all of a sudden you're going to check in on this project and you get access denied. And you think, what's wrong with my account? What's wrong? What's going on? Is my password been changed? Did somebody hack my account? What's happening here? And then you discover after the fact that your project is already down, it's already offline, it has GitHub, or actually, let's be honest, Microsoft, Because it's Microsoft who owns GitHub, and they have to own the good and the bad here. Microsoft has taken a popular, well-known, free software project offline without even notifying the developers. I mean, they probably issued them some sort of automatic email that they missed. But there was no due process here. There was no chance for them to first contact the project and tell the project, hey, we've received this complaint, and they believe this violation has occurred. Would you like to respond? No.
1: Boom. Immediate action. They shut it down. And that is ridiculous. This makes me worried because I use YouTube DL a fair bit here and there. And what's going to happen? I've got this snap of it installed now, but that's probably not going to get any updates unless this gets sorted out. You would have thought that one of the forks will survive and we'll probably just have to use that. But it's a dangerous precedent here going after open source tools. What about, for example, NewPipe, the Android app that I use, which is totally open source, I use that to watch YouTube videos on my phone. Are they going to go after that now because you can download videos there?
0: We'll just have to wait and see. If they decide to start targeting tools like this all the time, it's going to be a real problem. I, I bet every clip I've ever played in any Linux podcast from an open source event or speech or conference or presentation was likely captured with YouTube DL. And there was no issue. It was Creative Commons. It, you know It's like a totally legitimate use of a tool here. Uh, I often will save things offline to just watch later. I'm a YouTube premium subscriber too, so I'm paying per month. I don't get ads anyways. So I've never, I've never preferred to monetize the creators I watch by watching penny ads on YouTube for shaving cream. Instead, I just prefer to either monetize directly through Patreon or some other platform or to at least do a YouTube red subscription. So then everybody wins. And in that case, in that use case, why can't I download the videos? Why can't I watch them? especially if the creators are smart enough to come up with a way to monetize directly and not rely on an arbitrary per bid advertising platform that rewards the lowest brow content possible. So the argument here that you're using it to steal music videos seems ludicrous because there's really no need to steal music videos anymore. They're They're so plentiful. They're so available online that there's, really nothing driving, incentivizing you to do this unless you're an archivist or you're storing it offline. I mean, and the use case here seems so niche. It seems like such a minority of what this tool will be used for that it's silly that that's what has framed the argument.
1: Surely anyone who is smart enough to figure out how to use YouTube DL on the command line is smart enough to install an ad blocker as well. So that argument of this is somehow denying these artists or record companies ad revenue seems a bit spurious it's surely a tiny minority of people who are using tools like this to view the videos rather than just the official app and sitting through the ads and skipping them when they're allowed and stuff yeah this just seems like the RIAA just trying to justify their existence
0: right and they're hoping they can they can lean on this old uh horse here but Anybody who publishes on YouTube can go look at their information on the sources. And you'll see, like, most commonly it's mobile. That's going to be, like, the top. And then you'll have web. And then there's, like, other in there. And that's the category that YouTube DL will fall into. Um, And for for Jupyter Broadcasting, which you have to figure has a probably higher than average awareness of a tool like YouTube DLs in that audience, it's, like, 3% of other. And that's going to include things besides just YouTube DL too. That's going to include pretty much anything that's hitting the API to play that video is counted as other. So, um, amongst other things like Roku apps and set top boxes, YouTube DL is in that grouping and in a, in a predominantly very technical community who is turned on to open source tools,
1: it's at like a 3% group. It's tiny. So you'd imagine the average Taylor Swift video it's got to be less than 1%, probably less than 0.1% people using YouTube DL. This is really about the RIAA developing
0: tools to scan through the source code of public open source projects and then automating a process to go after them to shut them down. And they're using... The revenue as a bit of a gaslight to make this okay. So that way there's not a big negative reaction to this. The RIAA, if you go back through history, has had a couple of really big public cases that brought them some really bad PR. And that's actually why people hate the name so much. When you say the name, it's, it's got to be like one of the worst brands in American history. And it's in part because of the some, just a couple of really horrible public cases where they went like after a grandma for <laughs> downloading mu- music on Napster. And they, they know now that when they do something like this, they have to control the narrative. They have to put something out there. And so by saying that the clear purpose of this source code – remember, this is their direct quote. The clear purpose of this source code is to circumvent the technological protection measures used by authorized streaming services such as YouTube. That's what it's really about. It's about going after the tool that could make this possible, even if they can't even quantify the cost. They had got to control this. They got to justify this kind of control. And that's how they're doing it, is with the monetization angle.
1: Well, you can still download the binaries and a tarball from their website, youtube-dl.org. So this hasn't even worked. It does say that their dev repository is down, but downloads are still working. So this is really just a Streisand effect situation here. Probably more people than ever have Found out about this. Technical people who otherwise didn't know about it will be using it. So well done, RIAA. Shot yourselves in the foot there.
0: Linux.ting.com. If you're on Wi Fi a lot, then why are you always paying for data? Why not just pay for what you use? That is what makes Ting special. A fair price for however much you talk, text, and however much data you use. And they have three nationwide networks for you to choose from. So rest assured, Ting has you covered coast to coast. My latest device I activated with Ting, it's a Verizon device. It's brilliant having them all under one control panel. And speaking of control panel, you are always in control. You can see your usage at a glance. You can set usage alerts. You can nickname accounts so you know what account is using what. And let's talk devices. They've got all of the devices, from iPhones to Androids or bring your own. You can go check out the Ting shop. Just do me a favor and start at linux.ting.com. That'll take $25 off a device, or if you bring a device. You go to linux.ting.com, they'll give you $25 in service credit. Now your average Ting bill, $23, $24 a month. So if you go to linux.ting.com, that'll cover your first month of Ting. So go check it out, linux.ting.com.
1: We have to mention Microsoft Edge arriving for Linux. It's only in preview, and you did talk about it on Linux Unplugged, but we couldn't let this one go by. This is a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah, this preview officially supports Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora, and OpenSUSE. Nothing out there for the pie yet. They're looking at ARM, Microsoft says. I've tried it on Fedora, and I've tried it on Ubuntu. And um, I guess I liked it better than I thought I would. You know, it's still lacking a few critical features for me to actually seriously use it. But uh, this last go-around, when 2010 came out and Fedora 33 is about to come out, I decided to try those distros with Firefox and Edge, And it kind of reminded me of the early days of Chrome. Remember when Chrome first launched, it was all about being lean and mean and fast? That was what Chrome's whole pitch was? That's kind of edge. It's lean and mean, only it's also Chrome. And it has good fonts. Like The fonts, to my eye, are some of the best-looking fonts on a Linux web browser.
1: Well, I tried this briefly, and all I can say is it's a fine browser, I suppose, I just don't have any motivation to use it. When I've got Firefox as my main browser and I've got Chrome installed for a few websites that need it, I just I don't have any motivation here to use this. And so it was only on a test machine and I used it uh, for a good couple of hours, but I just, there was nothing compelling enough about it to uh, make me make the change. I think it's really
0: about developers coming to where developers are at and giving them tooling so that way they can test their projects under Edge. And those aspects of it there are actually looking kind of solid. There's also things that are missing, like sync. So if you want to sync across multiple machines, there's nothing there for you just yet. They're still new to this. I mean, they only got Edge out for Windows not so long ago. And then they released it for the Mac in January of 2020. And now here we are in the fall of 2020, and it's landing for Linux. I got a lot of feedback from people after we did this show where we were kind of like, hmm, hmm, I don't get this. Hmm, I don't know about this. A lot of people know about it. They wrote me and said, "Yeah, I, you know, I'm in, I'm in corporate situation Y or I'm working on project X or I need it because of reason Z." And it made me realize that there's already a lot of people waiting for this. Like I you wouldn't think so. You wouldn't think a Microsoft browser on Linux would be something people are anticipating, but just based on the feedback alone I got, I know some people are. And now that I have used it, I think it's a perfectly fine browser, and I think it pushes forward on fonts on the desktop Linux, which is surprising to me, but
1: it's there, and I think it's worth taking a look at. I don't think this is going to be many people's primary browser, but I think there will be a lot of people who have it installed for testing and for the odd thing that needs it and for compliance reasons or whatever. So I think it will find its audience on Linux. I don't think it will be huge, but... I think Microsoft must have calculated that it is worth the investment to make it happen on Linux. Whether or not that will be a long-term commitment, I suppose it depends how many people try it out and use it. And they must be inheriting
0: some of the multi-platform benefit from Blink. That has to give them um, a lot of what it takes to get it over to Linux. And then they just have to close the gap. So I, I could see that as long as The Upstream project continues to support Linux. Microsoft will continue to release on Linux. I don't think we can have this conversation about Edge without acknowledging that there is a generous portion in our audience that will be concerned about metric collection. They're going to be concerned about Microsoft spying on them. And it's not really an area we can speak fully to yet because a beta has additional levels of collection and metrics that may not be in a final version but I am waiting for that um, inventive blogger to come up with a scenario to capture all edge traffic for a week and parse out what is actually going back to Microsoft. It does ask you when you launch the browser. It runs you through like a, a first time wizard kind of thing. And one of the things it asks you is if you want to collect details and metrics. I actually said yes. I'm not really using it a lot. I'm only going to use it for a couple of weeks. And in a way, I see that as a vote that somebody's running this on Linux by allowing them to collect my system information, whatever that might be, even if it's, you know, semi-identifiable, what I feel like the trade-off is is I'm voting in a sense with my wallet here. I'm saying I'm a Linux user and I'm an active Linux user who's downloaded your project and is running it. And I don't know a better way to send that signal than allowing them to collect the beta metrics for now. So I left it on, but I don't know what I would do long-term. That's an area where
1: I obviously just have a lot more comfort with Firefox. Yeah, you're saying, hey, Microsoft, I'm using this on Linux and here's my social security number <laughs> <laughs> and here's my phone
0: number my address and my mother's maiden <laughs> yeah. yeah it feels like you're doing that who really knows what you're sending so i actually would love i would love some transparency there they've they've got a couple of things in here besides fonts too that are nice um they have pretty good integration with the linux desktops so you can right click on the launcher icons and launch mul- multiple instances or launch a private window like you can with full fledged chrome and then Microsoft has added this concept of collections, which is bookmarks, but with all of the content for the website, not just the links that saves in the browser. That's actually something I find compelling because there's a lot of times we're doing research for a show and a story changes, and I like having the original version and the updated version because not everybody actually clarifies that they updated. And with collections, I just try to suck down all the information and store it. I'm an archivist in that regard, and it also is nice to have our offline purposes later. Linode.com slash land. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. You know, Linode started in 2003 as one of the world's first companies in cloud computing. I've known about them forever. But it was only a couple of years ago I decided to actually give Linode a try. They... Are independently owned and founded on a love for Linux. And that became immediately obvious to me. As a longtime Linux user, it shows in various aspects of how a company operates and how they build their products. And they've supported initiatives like Kubuntu and Linux Fest Northwest and all things open for a long time. But importantly, Linode is dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. They have fantastic fast internet connections. They have a great dashboard that makes it easy to manage all kinds of things like your DNS. On top of various servers you can choose from, say like a $5 a month shared hosting or dedicated CPU or GPU rigs, they also have object storage. And they have all kinds of tools you can use to manage these systems, too, like support for Terraform or Kubernetes, and object storage, which is a great way to store files in the cloud statically and link to them publicly. So check out Linode.com slash LAN. You get a $100 60-day credit. You can set it up for a personal server or portfolio, or you can run your company infrastructure. And they're going to cost 35 to 50% less than AWS, and they started three years before AWS. So go check them out. Linode.com slash LAN.
1: Well, we couldn't end my last episode any other way than with a cryptocurrency story. And I think this is a pretty big one. PayPal are going to support buying and selling and holding Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies.
0: This has got to be the biggest Bitcoin news since the last time we talked about Bitcoin. The value of Bitcoin has shot up significantly as we record right now. It's 13,000 U.S. greenbacks, uh, which is a big jump up because it was like below 10 not too long ago. This is... Both extremely frustrating and great to see. I was an early crypto coin enthusiast. I think I can claim that, right? Can I? I can make that claim. I was into crypto early. Yeah, I think so. And back then, Joe, back in my day, PayPal was an enemy of the crypto community. They were hostile towards small businesses that were trying to start up and base business around the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. They actively sought to shut them down. They were anti-competitive. And it seemed like such a short-sighted move because they were out of all of our quote-unquote financial institutions in the US they seem like the best positioned to go after cryptocurrency it just seemed obvious because they could even if they just use it as a back end technology to actually facilitate the transactions but, you know because they're PayPal's a company that's mostly working with soft money where people could go and they could cancel a credit card payment and then paypal screwed so it just seemed natural to me that they would want to adopt something that was blockchain based that they could account for and had no takebacks Um, But they fought it and they fought it until they could fight it no longer. And now they've announced that they will have early support, I think you could say, you know, early support. And this eventually will extend down to even like payment services like Venmo. So it will have ramifications that reach across the industry. But it's
1: it's not everything you'd hope for. Yeah, they're doing it in a very PayPal way. If you dig into what they've written about this, they have kind of an FAQ. Will PayPal support peer-to-peer crypto trades? Not at this time. PayPal only supports the purchase and sale of cryptocurrency using your PayPal account. To complete peer-to-peer transactions with PayPal, all crypto assets held with PayPal must be sold and thus converted into USD. So it's not even really properly supporting it.
0: Yeah. You'll essentially only hold cryptocurrencies that you buy on PayPal in your PayPal account. And you won't be able to even transfer that to another PayPal account,
1: and you won't be able to pay merchants with that balance either. That's how it's going to be at first, but you have to figure to get any value out of this, they're going to have to change that down the line. Right.
0: I think the uh, the limitations are an indication of where they are going to attempt to extract that value out of the chain. So when you transfer or when you buy something with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, they're going to get their cut. If you read that fact that you mentioned, and uh, we'll have a good article that actually sums all this up if you don't even want to read that, they're clearly wording these limitations in a way that are temporary, and eventually they'll roll out additional features, but they must have a huge back end they have to sort out. Once you start high-volume Bitcoin trading, (laughs) it really puts a load on a database. And in their press release that announced all this, they said, quote, There are no service fees when buying or selling cryptocurrency through December 31st, 2020, and there are no fees for holding cryptocurrency in a PayPal account. What I read out of that statement is there are no service fees when buying or selling cryptocurrency right now until December 31st. After December 31st, there's going to be fees. There won't ever be fees for just letting it sit in your account. But if you want to get it in or out or buy any new stuff, There
1: will be fees, and that's how eventually PayPal will make money off this. Yeah, there's a big yet missing from all those statements about it. They're going to have to charge fees for this. Otherwise, why are they doing it? But big picture here, I think this is going to be good to boost the cryptocurrency market.
0: I mean, it already has brought the value up a bit. But I suspect when you take a 10-year view on digital currencies, PayPal will be the start of that 10-year view where it started bringing digital currencies to the normals. And over the next 10 years, there's going to be a couple of huge moments that make digital currency, just the phrase digital currency, a common phrase among citizens in the States. It's going to be normalized over the next decade, and it starts today with PayPal. And I know that sounds like a massive statement, but trust me, come back in 10 years and check
1: my math on this one. I think the first step was Facebook's Libra, and this is the second one, really. Maybe. I'm not sure I'm counting that one since it seems to be a flop. If PayPal
0: eventually rolls this out where cryptocurrency can be used to interact with their millions of merchants that they have, tens and tens of millions of merchants that use PayPal, that's going to be a game changer. But I think this combined with other things that are coming down the pipe uh, are, are really going to bring digital currency to the masses in a way that Facebook's Libre thing was interesting as a payment thing online, but this is going to be everyday life. Digital currency is going to be involved with everyday life. And I think, I think the reason why this PayPal one is, is significant is because they see the way things are trending. They already see the way things are going and they're acting now. They're trying to get ahead of it now and it's going to become common. And if they're not, if they, if they didn't make this move, they were just going to be left behind. And that's why when we started, I said this was inevitable and it was frustrating to watch them fight it early on. And I'm not even sure it's good, by the way, because I know I'm going to take a lot of flack for this from the audience. I'm not saying I want to give up my cash. I'm saying it's coming, and I'm saying we'll look back at it and remember when PayPal started
1: supporting cryptocurrencies. Oh, yeah, the move away from cash has very much started already. There's a bunch of businesses that just won't accept cash now because of the global situation, and I don't think that it'll ever come back for a lot of those businesses because cash is an expensive overhead for them. They have to count it and put it into the bank and you know deal with safes and all the rest of that. Whereas digital payments, if it's credit and debit cards, or ultimately blockchain-based systems, is just so much easier for them to deal with. So we are definitely heading towards a cashless society. That is a terrible thing, but it's inevitable. And cryptocurrencies are going to be some part of that. I can't tell you, though, how many times I've been working with an
0: international contractor, and we're trying to figure out what the best way to pay them is. And there's always some service that takes a cut and adds delay. And every time I'm, like, using PayPal or something, I think to myself, this would be so much simpler with Bitcoin. It just sends directly to them. You know, it's confirmed within 30 minutes, and you've got the money. And there was, you know, if you want to, if you want to pay a fee for the network to move it quicker, you can, or you can opt not to. And it's just that simple. There's not three middlemen. There's not some currency conversion that has to take place. There's trusted math in between, and it's from my wallet to your wallet. And then if you want to convert it to a local currency, then you may pay some some sort of conversion fee, but that's up to the end user. And it just seems like such a st- more straightforward process. It's weird to feel that way about cryptocurrency, but when you start paying people internationally, you could see the advantage
1: to it. Yeah, but the huge disadvantage is the volatility. It's
0: $13,000. It's to the moon, Joe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. I can't remember what I said it would be worth at the end of the year now, but uh, we'll get there shortly. Well, we will see, because I'm wondering
0: what I said, too. Um, We'll bring you back for the end of your episode and hold you accountable and just hope that I was right. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see.
1: Well, I'm not going to be completely gone. I'm going to be editing Linux Unplugged still, so I'm going to be around the network And I'm also going to be on air with my two shows, Late Night Linux and Two and a Half Admins, which is written as 2.5 admins. So check those out.
0: Yeah, and be sure to check out the rave edition of Linux Action News coming soon with Wes Payne and myself. You can get every episode with rave music and the news at (laughs) linuxactionnews.com
1: slash subscribe. Okay, maybe not the rave music part. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. I think I'll still be seeing those emails for a while. <laughs> yeah, probably because I just won't turn it off. We'll be back next Monday. Well, at least Wes and I will be back next Monday with our
0: weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislass.com.
1: And you can find me at joelriss.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you See you later.